Hello, and today I'm in South London to meet the book artist, PhD candidate and committee member at the British Library's Artists Book Initiative, Igidia. Now I'm going to try and pronounce <laughs> your surname, Igidia. Bear with me. Igidia Chiriketi. Well, it's much better than I expected, oh. but not quite. Go on, tell me. Um, it's Chiritsaite. Ah, okay. Because interestingly, on your website, yeah. you helpfully tell people how to pronounce your first name, which I believe that's not too bad, Igidia. Is that about along the right lines? Yeah, it, it's, it's perfect, yes. yes okay. Yeah. But there's no reference to how to pronounce your surname. So I looked it up, or I tried to go to the internet for, for some help. Because in my mind, uh, ever since I've known you, it's always been Siricate. So, <laughs> so I looked it up, so, I, so I, the best I could do is Chiricate. This is so much better than what I'm used to. I stopped in encouraging people to try to pronounce my surname and decided to focus on my first name because there are too many options to mispronounce my surname. Sure. And then nobody knows uh, what it really is. So I'm very happy that it is recognizable when it is written. And I'm also very happy to be addressed only by my first name. Well, never let it be said that I don't do my research for this <laughs> podcast. But, so you are from Lithuania? Yes, I am, yes. Yes, uh, but you're living in London and you're studying for a PhD. I am, I'm at the Slade now and uh, I'm working um, on a PhD, yes. Well, fantastic, and I want to come on to ask you a little bit about your PhD in a while, but maybe we could start by talking about your work with books and book art. And just before we came on air, because we're sitting in your lovely kitchen, but we went upstairs to your studio space, your little office, and it's fantastically filled with uh, all sorts of inks and there's vials of stuff on the walls and then you've got this like a little washing line it seems with pegged looks like sheets of paper or materials or something that you use and this this lovely sense of, of a working space and your medium is books and artist books would that be fair? I would say I work in two mediums simultaneously one would be um, book as a medium and it, then taking it further I work um, with language as a medium and most of the time the two come together into the same space that's when I do the kind of work that I like doing more, more recently more recently um, probably in the last couple of years since, since I came to Slater I started working more with language and less with images or more with imagism in language and not just images embedded in language through words. So I would say books, yes. Language, yes. Would you like to kind of describe, a, for example, of a type of work that you might produce? So, um, yes. Now, in the last, uh, as I said, in the last couple of years, my work shifted more towards language. Um, I worked... Um, more with images before i think because i wasn't feeling very confident i thought that language was something that poets would do and you need to be called a poet rather than an artist to work competently with, with language and then i started working more with language and i realized i probably have become a poet by now 
I, I, I think I have, actually. I think I have. <laughs> um, You've gone over to the dark side. <laughs> I've gone to the other side, I know. I, I, will, be, I will be performing uh, at uh, the European uh, Festival of Poetry in, uh, uh, next month, and that will be my first outing, which will be more based on language rather than specifically language in the book form. So what is the allure, would you say, of artist books, or what drew you to working in this way? Um, I stumbled into, into artist books, and um, I like uh, the sequentiality and the flow that it allows, in that, uh, in a way, you can produce extended thoughts that can start at one point, and sometime later can develop into, into another one. Um, if you're looking at a 2D work of art, that can happen as well if you spend enough time. But as, as research says, people generally tend to spend not enough time looking at 2D objects of art. Well, it's interesting because, because I, as you know, I'm, I'm very interested in words and text and language, but I've never really quite gone down the, the artist book root and I've, I still can't resolve it in my mind as to as to what why not but it is a particular sensibility it is you were talking about poetry earlier on it, it seems to be have seems to have a kinship with a kind of poetic aesthetic maybe in terms of fragments and collections and associations maybe There's, the, the, the field of artist books is so vast there is so much that sits at the core, at the, at the, and then you go to the periphery and it's even bigger. Because artist books are not just produced by artists. There are designers who produce artist books, there are poets who produce artist books. For example, at Small Publishers Fair, there's Royal Holloway, uh, the poetry uh, MA course, who always has very interesting artist books, and they are poetry. A lot of them work with book form, using it as space for language uh, so yeah and then you have photographers producing artist books uh, like uh, we talk Edmund Clark who is not a book artist at all uh, of, of any sort would never consider himself uh, but an extraordinary photographer who just naturally does very sensitive work putting his photography into the book form so the, the, the range of people who, who work with books is, is, is really broad. And then, then yes, you, you get into all uh, handmade papers, which have a completely different aesthetic. And then you have the whole letterpress movement. And that has a completely different aesthetic and so many branches to that. So I think that there are so many, so many aspects of it. And it, it's uh, so multi-layered and so diverse. And, and so often overlooked and unnoticeable. I, I think generally most people would be able to find something uh, within this broad range of artist books that they find interesting and exciting. I think that's really interesting and, re and really helpful actually to, to re remind well, to remind me, apart from never mind anybody else, that, you know, we talk about artist book, but that, as you say, that is such a huge topic and there are so many sub-genres, so many different flavours of it, mm. that it's a mistake to try and really to try and kind of put too much of a, a rope around the whole lot and think of them as one, one thing, because there are just so many different ways in which you can approach the whole possibility, really. One way of looking at artist books it would possibly be in terms of uh, uh, 
I don't know, an output of artistic practice of some sort, uh, but that would limit it to artists. Then you would have to be an artist. What about, uh, I mean, an artist book. I mean, why is it called artist book, not poet's book? Why are we, why are we discriminating against poets? <laughs> or photographers. Or, or, or anybody who wants to make a book. Designers. Yes. I mean, Bruno Monari did fabulous, amazing artist books and... Uh, he, he, he's a designer. Well, I suppose my own preconceptions were that it was more like the, the kind of craftiness of, of obsessing over particular types and weights of paper or particular mm. traditions of bindings or the which I, not having, I felt a little bit uncertain because I didn't have a, an, an understanding of their histories and, and what the reference points of all of that. But you've just reminded me there's just so, so much else to go with it. I think um, it might be interesting if we took our cups of coffee back upstairs to have a look at uh, some of the books that I've got there, which, um, uh, well, we can try to do a very good job describing to the listeners. That would be fantastic. Let's do it. Okay. So we are back after, well, we are now in, I am in receipt of a fantastic glass of homemade elderflower fizz. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And yes. it's much appreciated because it's a very warm day and we have migrated to the nerve centre of your operation, which is a relatively small space but as I say floor to ceiling or so it would seem with books and papers and inks and uh, materials and and it seems like a really energized space so because um, you thought that it would be nice to share a few examples of books and bookworks to talk about well kitchen is is a good place to think and it's good to have meetings but if you if you're talking about um, specific books it's nice to have them in hands and Definitely. you just just can't move everything to the kitchen um so i've got here a, a box with a uh, some of my my works i'll probably talk about um my more recent work We've got a couple here. So uh, the book I'm holding in my hands now is called The Curtain. Uh, there is also a GIF, a moving image version of this, uh, uh, of the poem. It's um, yeah, in two languages. Now, uh, like most of my books, it is printed on semi-translucent paper on vellum. Uh, the cover is slightly thicker. It's probably about 160 GSM and the internal pages are, um, I think, 62 GSM or 42 GSM. So they're quite light. They're very translucent. And really, the book was inspired by, you know, when you do search on Instagram, you, you press the search button and then underneath you have all sorts of suggestions that you might be interested in. So for whatever reason, there was this image of curtains moving in the wind. It was curious, so I pressed on it, and it took me then to YouTube. And underneath, going even further, there was probably the most beautiful video I have seen for a long time. It was home recorded. It's a couple recording the corridor of a music school. 
probably while waiting for their child. You can hear them talking lightly in the background. And the video that you see is this corridor with windows on the right and uh, net curtains billowing in summer in the draft of summer heat. There's bright sun and there are curtains billowing. And on the left is just a line of doors. And you hear piano music very lightly coming from one of the rooms. Something uh, very Debussy about it. Those very light tingling notes of the piano and a row of net curtains billowing almost to the rhythm of that piano. It was so beautiful. It was one of those moments where you're watching it and you feel your breathing stop. It was very short. It was probably less than a minute, but absolutely beautiful. So what I found interesting is that uh, the corridor was clearly not in England and you could hear like the couple were talking quietly. So you could decipher the language, but it was kind of relevant where it was. But it was the fact that those were net curtains and they were billowing. And this is the side that you can see anywhere in the world, that side of billowing curtain. And that made me think about net curtains and you travel around the world and doesn't matter where you go and you will always come across those houses that have net curtains on them. And there is something very comforting about it. It's, it's something that's kind of like, ah, this is mum's home. There's something, you know, you, you watch those cookery programs and um, there's, there's some grandmas in Turkey cooking uh, huge pots of something absolutely amazing and delicious. And there's in the background a net curtain hanging. And you think, oh, it means like it's really nice food that's happening there. So there is there is that ubiquitous presence of it and the certain associations that it uh, it brings. To, and I was thinking about those billowing curtains around uh, around the world and wh what they mean to, to various people. So I did the book. Like, when you look at it from the top, for me, that's Drapes of the Curtain because the poetry was written over the image of the curtains, uh, stills from that video. And as you go through pages, while those the lines of poetry drip down with the folds of the curtain, they move, they retract, they lift. The poem changes from page to page, from Lithuanian to English and back, from English to Lithuanian and back. It is not a translation from one to the other, but it talks about similar things, referencing the context of those languages, where those languages exist, which probably means a translation. I mean, it, there's a question of what translation is in that uh, in that sense. But what I mean, it's not a literal translation. And as you go page by page, as you're moving through those sheets of billow and curtain overlapping each other, the layers become smaller until you have just one drape or two drapes left and your final page. Can I have a look? Thank you. Well, first of all, your description of the video that you found on YouTube takes us back in my mind to ideas of poetry again. Is that that kind of that poetic mm. sensibility or that poetic moment? And I was really taken by the little video and that delicate sense of movement that it had and the, the way in which the, the letters were were just drifting and slowly sliding down the frame. And there was a net. Oh, there was a curtain that was it. George Cullum did. Was that next to it? 
No, that's a, that's a different one. Is that, that was a, 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 okay. So there's um, am I confusing the, the two? So there is another work that we did with George Cullen, which is "Do It on Rain," and that is uh, that is at this very present moment going into the next stage of production, oh, uh, right. because it is now materializing itself in proper form of an artist book. I have done a few similar works. Uh, that, that, that's all my rainy pages. <laughs> the, okay, so this is where the 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 actual um, do it, uh, the, the originals of uh, do it on rain at the moment live. Do it on rain. While the curtain was done on typewriter, and the words were draped on the page with a typewriter, do it on rain was done with letter set. Letter set gives you more freedom to scatter words. Wow, they are they are beautifully done. I mean, there is a lovely sense of the the kind of the the, te the tactile, the object, the qualities of, of it all, isn't there? Mm. And the letters themselves in this one and and the uh, the curtain piece, they're just so kind of fragile and delicate and and beautifully placed almost on the page, aren't they? Uh, I started working with a with a typewriter a couple of years ago. I found typewriter more fluid than computer. Weirdly, I did Clocks and Crickets book, which um, was inspired by Ligeti's Clocks and Clouds, which was in its own right was inspired by Karl Popper's On Clocks and Clouds, minus Clocks and Crickets, which is more of a reflection of on of summer's evening but again it's got visual poetry layered through the pages picking up on the rhythms of the of the evening through the rhythms of the words on the page the chirping of the crickets and the clock beating in the background Th those were all done on the computer but then I moved to more manual ways of working and Soft Snow was my first work. Uh, Soft Snow was printed on uh, risograph and embossed in white at the Slade print shop. Uh, it was done with typewriter and it has um, William Blake's poem Soft Snow, his version in English, softly across pages, dripping down onto the ground in layers of snowdrifts becoming its own Lithuanian version. So this was my first typewriter sort of experiment. And from there, only later did I move to, to letter set. But I still find typewriter very fluid and expressive tool. What I wasn't expecting was how fragile and delicate these are, which adds to the whole sense of the magic. The letters and the poetry comes alive as a result, doesn't it? The way it's, it's flowing on the page rather than static in lines or in, you know, straightforward layouts. The, the, the flow to it. Also try to make sure in all of those works that um, the actual poetry is legible. It's only recently that I have started moving away from that legibility with a dirt on rain, where I think the evocative power that can come through material means can be sufficient for certain things, and uh, for other things you need to read the language. I was looking at, uh, again on your website, a couple that, that particularly stood out. One was between one hand and, and another, mm -hmm. where you invited people to hold a book and describe it without seeing it. So thinking about the book 
in itself maybe without actually its content. And another one that also intrigued me was a discreet book of bathroom reading mm -hmm. and your collection of images of women reading and what that says about the act of reading and the way in which women are portrayed and so on. And now we're moving on through, you've been talking about poetry and I'm interested to hear about your PhD in a minute as well. It feels as though you're really kind of exploring all sorts of different facets, or you have been. Um, I think the, the two works that you've mentioned, the Book of Bathroom Reading, that's probably from about 10 years ago, I'm thinking. And the uh, between one hand and another, maybe eight, seven, I can't remember between one hand and another was part of the project that I did with George Cullen and Chris Gibson and we all met at Camberwell and we we stuck together for some time producing work so this project specifically was uh, looking at how when you take a book and you can't see the content what does it evoke basically we're looking at historically fossilized forms of the book which um, it's a bit like an acquired taste you grew up with certain forms of, of book being printed with certain content so for example bible will always have that thin bible paper so when you pick up a bible even with, with, with your eyes closed you would know it's a bible uh, encyclopedias have certain weight poetry volumes are usually quite small and, and, and intimate that was the interest but of course you know like sometimes Poetry comes in a, in a big, uh, thick volume. It might be an anthology. Sometimes Bible might be printed for children on 100 GSM paper and, uh, and heavily illustrated. So we filmed people, visitors to the library, handling books blindfolded and talking about them, looking at um, what do they evoke? What do they remind them of? What, what do they make them think? And then we, we um, recorded all of that video as a silent video with subtitles uh, so we did that video and then we converted that video into a book a4 size very very thick with all the subtitles running at the bottom and all people there with their eyes closed talking about books um, now the first one that you were talking about the little book of bathroom reading that was a long time ago what I was fascinated at that point is how reading is portrayed how more often than not when uh, people take photos of themselves reading it is either on a holiday or in the bath basically it's relaxing and then I realized how many of those photos are in fact just book and the legs all those pictures of books legs um, behind them and the candles or a glass of wine on the side i don't think i found any men's photos like that so it is clearly uh, an image that was very specific to women producing to i don't know like a certain audience a symbol of uh, me being relaxed me being uh, I don't know, enjoying reading. Um, it, it's very peculiar. So I, saw, I actually accumulated quite a large library of, uh, of people reading books in the bath. Really, that project was a continuation of an earlier one that I did, where I accumulated a library of images of people holding books. That's not just people holding books in the bath, but also images in the paintings across the history of books being held. And after bathroom reading, I did um, 
uh, the book that I still like very much, which is called Those Frivolous Readers, which is basically about portrayal of women readers specifically. I have the book here. It is printed on 6GSM Japanese paper. It's it's so it's so light and so delicate and so translucent. You can't breathe on it without moving the pages. So there are those layers of images of semi-dressed or underdressed women from paintings and photography reading. The images are layered so you can't really see them very well until you lift the page. But what you can see is how they are draped on the sofas and how how sensual those those photographs are. I printed them in magenta, pure magenta and black. So they have this sort of pinkish sheen, all of those photos, especially when layered. But you can't escape noticing how the hair flows. It's very light and very eroticized. How their fingers and hands are very gentle, almost porcelain, sensual, tactile. You even get a few glimpses of breasts exposed uh, here and there. There might be a suggestive vessel protruding somewhere. Their eyes are always seductively lowered. You don't have them looking back at you. And the book includes uh, an essay in the middle about women readers. It's a short essay. What I found interesting is that when you look at those images, they're, they're sort of, they more resemble the reclining nude, those reading women. It's not a sexy librarian. That is a completely different thing. That is eroticized knowledge. This is the reclining nude, withdrawn with a book. This was the work where I discovered layering and very light paper. I will admit it's a pain to print something as light as that. I mean, it looks as though it's just going to fall apart. It's just so tissue paper thin. It's thinner than tissue paper. Yeah, wow. but, it, but it's extremely strong. It's not going to disintegrate easily. But if you breathe on it, it will lift. But Have and, a look. And thank you. And again, it's just that objectness of it. It carries it beyond just its content and, and the essay and the images, the way in which you've put it together and the choices you've made around the paper and the translucency just all add that extra dimension oh yeah good grief if that paper was not such a pain to print on i would be using it more often you get a lot of wastage from it by the time you've printed one copy you probably have your your bin bag full of paper ruined in every possible way but it's just so perfect for this pro yeah. and just the filminess, the wispiness, the seductive qualities. It's extremely light, as you would expect. And I love the way that you've explored these different aspects of the project, thinking about the book without uh, reading the context. There's a fabulous book called How to Talk About Books That You Haven't Read. <laughs> and it's exactly that, that sense in which we have a preconception around mm. certain things, uh, the books, or you might have heard it in conversation. So before you even start to read it, you've already got a sense in your mind of what mm. it might be. And all these other cues that inform our approach before we even read page one. We simply don't have mental capacity to process each input as a new input. So we are looking for those clues. We store all those clues about what to expect 
we, we don't even see the world as it is. We see as we expect it to see. Uh, where there's a discrepancy, well, our brains just make the alignment, okay, this is what it should be, this is what it should be, and then we get on with it. And that's where optical illusions come in, mm. because that's those are the, the wrinkles in the, in the system. So now I wanted to come on to your PhD and you were saying that you were thinking more about language and I was also intrigued by this concept of relevance theory which <laughs> I hadn't come across. Is, is it possible to summarise, well A, how's it going and B, <laughs> is it possible to summarise it in uh, words of one syllable? Oh, it, it's not. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm tremendously enjoying it. It's... Uh, it's a hugely interesting project. It's taking me the directions that I'm finding new and, and refreshing in the ways that it makes me think. I've always enjoyed that bit nerdy, geeky sort of like academic research. And, uh, and I've also enjoyed uh, all of this creative part. So th this, having those two pathways running uh, next to each other and simultaneously is how I work best. As you can see here, I have two desks. There is one that's got computers and printers. This is my academic side with all the academic books. And then on the other side, I have all my inks and papers, which is my other side, my creative side. I really sh sh should say how they all both merge and uh, how things happen in this, uh, in this furnace of my artistic mind. But th th that's not the case. <laughs> it really isn't. This is where on one side my research happens and I tremendously enjoy this. I'm reading those books and you can see like the titles here. Uh, they range from uh, Meaning and Relevance by Wilson and Sperber to Figuring the Word by Joanna Drucker. Then there's poetry, there's uh, artist books and uh, like the whole range of, of things. On the other side, I have my bookie stuff. I have my prints. I've, I've even got a little Adana machine there on the shelf. I've got boxes of paints and gilding uh, equipment. No, there, there is no furnace that, uh, that sort of, that it, it's me in the middle. Those tables are still separate. They feed off each other. So my academic research feeds on my creative practice and the other way around. But they're not the same thing. However, for example, if I'm working on a brain intensive text, I would be taking breaks on my other table and kind of going almost into a meditative state with some uh, visual poetry, for example. I find the process is very interesting, very curious. I know that everyone works in their own way and everyone works differently. And some people might have everything in one furnace. I have two furnaces burning and they're all producing their own stuff. So my PhD is at the slate. I'm producing my practice and I'm doing my academic research. So what relevance theory, basically the main things about it, uh, is uh, we cannot process every stimulus that surrounds us. Like there's just so much around us. Like you're not sitting here and seeking meaning intentionally in, in like those bags hanging like in, in, my, in my ruler here. You're not really, really looking into this ruler there and thinking like, it's, oh, I've got to read some meaning into it. No, it would be exhausting if we try to, to really read meaning into every, every stimuli that crosses our field of vision or every sound. We seek something called ostensive stimuli, which is a sign that meaning is being communicated. So now you're paying attention at me because I'm probably the most meaningful uh, communication in this, in, this, in this environment. Now, if you went to the gallery, for example, and you had this ruler hanging on the wall, 
you would actually be paying much more attention than you've been paying at this ruler. And the reason for that is because that setup would be indicative that there is something in it. You need to pay special attention. We don't pay attention to every pebble on the beach. We just walk on it. But then you come to the missile spiral jetty and suddenly all those pebbles become very meaningful. So this is one thing. And then we go further. We find those things that we are interpreting. Now, for example, with artist books, your attention might be drawn to the fact that it's not, it looks like a book, but it's not quite a book. Now, there are many books that look not quite a book. You might see a book which has covers ripped off. You simply may decide, well, well, it, there's been an accident, it fell, or you pick up a book and it's got no nothing inside. Well, it might be a misspell, it ran out of ink, ran out in the printer. But then you pick up an artist's book and the context of where you pick it up gives you that ostensive similars that it is meaningful. And you start looking into it. So now you're starting to look into it. So then we're going further. So you found that ostensive similars. Now you need to make sense of it. One of the things that really interests me is something called non-propositional effects. So in logic, proposition is a statement. So propositional content of a sentence, for example, would be that what can be transcribed as a truth conditional statement. So it's either true or false. So for example, it's raining, it is false because the sun is shining. Now, when you encounter, for example, poetry, you may have that propositional content. You might say that a poem is about uh, fog, for example. But then you have non-propositional content. And non-propositional content is all those emotions, feelings, those images that it evokes. It's that awe, that aesthetic experience that you have from encountering poetry or artwork. And to round it all up, I'm looking at the metaphor, because metaphor covers figurative language, it covers all of those things. So there are many aspects to relevance theory, but in effect, we're looking at interpretation. Interpretation, I don't mean just those propositional statements, like this book about people reading in the bath, or uh, this book is about uh, curtains. Well, it, yes and no, because there is more to that book about curtain. There is that whole affect of the work. That's fantastic. That's really grand and really gives a, an articulation to maybe something about what people try and do when they create is mm. something over and above the purely descriptive or the purely mm. functional and alluding to things, suggesting things, trying to conjure things up. And I'm also fascinated by the fact that here you are sitting, as you say, <laughs> between your two desks. You've got your academic hat and you've got your book arts hat. And they do feed into each other, although in some ways they're discreet. But it's all this inquiry into this same area. I, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm getting a real sense now, or maybe just a little peek into your brain and mapping out these little areas of concern and interest mm. and how it fits together or how it how it shapes up, which it, it really does. Well, uh, as I've said, those two desks are very clearly separate, except that they do, there's me in the middle uh, between the <laughs> exactly, two of them. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and there is work happens at one desk, there is work that happens on the other desk, but inevitably they do feed into each other. But they, 
they look at the same subjects, they work on the same subjects, but not always together. Yes, and, and from my point of view, I think that feels right. Art isn't necessarily illustrating research. No. It, that's not the way it no. works. No. There's this kind of intangible quality between the two. Yes. And that's all part of the fun, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. I think it's very important that art does not illustrate research. It is a process in its own right, which is preoccupied with the same issues, but is rooted in different processes. That's the way that I look at it. Well, that may be a fantastic place at which to say thank you so much for this conversation. It's been absolutely fascinating to have a peek into your world of creativity and research and to map out some of these ways in which you're you're working with this whole area and it's been it's been really fascinating to see so thank you so much thank you robert for coming here a pleasure thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media. And check out the podcast notes for links and further information. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Berwick Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design, and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon.